Well, Father, we come before you just grateful to be here and to listen to the words and the teaching of Jesus Christ. Father, it's amazing that a man who lived 2,000 years ago could teach such compelling lessons and can call on us from the ancient past to follow him. Lord, we know that he wasn't just a man, but he's a resurrected Lord, and has extended an invitation to follow him as he prepares to come back for his kingdom. I pray that this message will be especially pertinent to those who hear it. Holy Spirit, without your help, uh, such hearing and preaching is not possible, so I pray that you will be unusually active today in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Phil grew up in a nominally Christian family, which meant that they were Christians because there weren't anything else, and they went to church when they had time. His life was relatively normal and middle class until the teenage years when his parents got a divorce. This left him confused and angry and led him into all kinds of expressions of rebellion, drinking drugs, he he did it all. And in his mid-twenties, he was in a relationship living with his girlfriend when she became pregnant. Uh, they decided to, to keep the child, and this child that they wanted to keep was actually born eight weeks premature. As the child is in the hospital, they were not sure if he would live, and so Phil began to pray. And God answered that prayer. The child lived, and he decided to commit himself to the Lord, And so he was baptized, he married his partner, and got involved in in youth ministry because that was such a critical time in his own life. Well, one day the youth pastor called in sick and asked if Phil could, well, fill in. So he did. He shared his testimony, and, and the students and the staff alike were not only gripped by his storytelling ability, but the story itself. It was clear that he had some ability to communicate the truth. And so one thing led to another. He was given more opportunities to teach and to preach, and they sent him off to to seminary. There he completed his Master of Divinity, studying Hebrew and Greek and theology and and studying how to preach. And then he took a, a rural church, where he would minister the gospel with great hopes that he would make a difference in the small town. Well, ten years later, no difference seems to have been made. His family is still struggling financially. His marriage is frosty. And he's just all around discouraged. One day he drives by a liquor store and he thinks, you know what? To help with my insomnia, I'm going to just get a little bit of whiskey. And so he does. And he just takes a shot right before bed just to help him sleep. Then he begins to take coffee in the morning to wake up. Eventually, the shot before bed becomes, well, a shot after work just to help take off the stress. And it begins to build and and as he's kind of balancing coffee to get the energy up and, 
and alcohol to help you unwind, somebody offers him meth with the promise that this will help him be more productive. It will speed you up. And so he takes that. Eventually he gets caught, and naturally any good church, when they find out your pastor's on meth, would fire him. And he was fired. With no job, no hope, no way to provide for himself, he decides that he is going to find a way to provide, and, and he does so by distributing meth. Eventually he gets arrested, thrown in jail. And if you were to talk to him in jail, he still quotes Calvin. He has John 3.16 memorized in the ESV and in the Greek. He can still critique sermons. He still loves listening to good, hard preaching. But there's something missing, isn't there? Right? He confesses it all. He confesses the Westminster Confession, the London 1689 Confession. You name a confession, he can confess it. He agrees with it. But he doesn't possess the faith. There's a difference between confession and possession. He's lacking a comprehensive faith. Now, when we get to Luke chapter 9, we find Jesus entering the final stretch of his ministry. In a conversation with his disciples, after they watch all of his teaching, his miracles, participate in his wonderful works, he asks them the question that will define their existence, but he does a, he does a soft question first. He says in verse 9, 18, he asks, who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Right? These are honorable speculations, but what's missing? Right? Prophet, John the Baptist, Elijah, no mention of a Messiah? So he follows up again. But who do you say I am? And Peter answers for all the disciples, the Christ of God. Jesus is the king. He is the Messiah. He's the one who has been sent by God to return Israel to the golden age. Now, before they get too excited, Jesus nuances this. And he strictly charged them, verse 21, and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Whoa. Instead of leading the righteous to glory, the righteous will turn against him. He will suffer, and he will die. But he will be raised. Right? They make this great confession, but then Jesus says, actually, this is what's going to take place. It's almost as if he's saying, are you sure about this? It's not enough to have the right confession. Jesus solicits a comprehensive commitment in verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels? But I tell you truly, there are some standing here 
who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now note, Jesus said to who? To them all. This is not a command for just the apostles. It's not necessarily just a command for just the disciples, the mixed group of men and women. This is a command that was given 2,000 years ago that is spoken to anyone who is entertaining the possibility of coming after Jesus. He is asking for a comprehensive commitment. You see, there is a, a difference between the possession of faith and the confession of faith. Right? The confessions, confessions are important, right? For instance, do you believe that Jesus died for your sin? Do you believe that he is the, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity? Do you believe that he was raised from the dead? Do you believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father but through him. Do you believe that Jesus will come back and judge the living and the dead? Do you believe those things? Right? I, I hope so, because if you don't, you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian and still believe that Jesus is still in the tomb. Does that make sense? There is a, complace, a place for confessions. Confessions are what we call a necessary condition for salvation. But they're not sufficient, right? Clouds are a necessary condition for rain, but it's not sufficient. See, Jesus wants more than a confession. He wants a comprehensive commitment. Now, in the U.S., there are 176 million Christians that confess the Christian faith. Pew Research calls them up and say and ask, are you a Jew, Muslim, Christian, or none of the above? And they'll say Christian. Right? So we have a lot of people who will confess Christianity. And we all know that, you know, if you're a Christian but you also believe in karma, well, you know, you don't really get it. But then you have people like Pastor Phil, who not only confesses it, but confesses all of it. He can ace any theological exam that you give him. It is to these people that this is a real dire warning. You see, there are many false professors out there. There are some who will discover it at judgment. Did you know that? Matthew seven twenty one to 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Scariest passage in all the Bible, right? I mean, can you imagine dying, going to heaven with a full expectation that Jesus is going to welcome you into his kingdom. And you know enough to call him Lord, Lord. And then he says, away from me. Right? This is not like some legalistic Fred Phelpsian Jesus who's saying this. This is actual text of scripture. There's a, there's a dire warning. There are some people who will discover that they're not Christians on that day. But there are some people who will discover that they are not Christians today. They get tired of faking it. The social pressure is too much. I was talking to 
miles earlier today. He had his birthday. I don't want to tell you how old he is, but it's more than 35 and less than 37. (laughs) And I'm realizing something that miles is old. (laughs) And when I kind of did the logical connection, that realizes that I just realized I'm really old. I mean, I'm rounding up to 50 old. Well, yeah, no, deep, I'm almost there. (laughs) And there's a lot of joy in aging. I love watching my kids grow to becoming the people that they are. I love, you know, the, you know, watching a lot of these little kids who are once in t-shirts and I had to, you know, kind of corral them in Sunday school now leading VBS, Right? There, there is a certain joy in growing old together and sharing life together. But one of the pains is looking at my past and many Christians who I thought were very solid and deeply committed not walking with the Lord anymore. And not just not walking with the Lord, we're talking like rejecting the Lord. Um, many of you know the pain that I'm talking about. And, and it often leads to some introspection, like what's going to keep me from doing the same thing? And what's ultimately lacking is some people, they had the confession. And confession, those are, those are words. People can have a convincing confession, but if they don't have a comprehensive faith, they will not be welcomed into the kingdom on the last day. And far be it from me to not warn you all of that reality, because I would hate to be there in the presence of Jesus watching you be taken away. So how do you make sure that when that day comes, you're, you're not just a confessor, but a possessor of the faith. Well, we're going to go through this passage, and this is the call to discipleship. One of the great passages in the Gospel of Luke. When I wanted to preach Luke, this is one of the passages I wanted to preach. That's why I changed my sermon so many times, because I felt like I was really messing it up. But there's really three, three elements of a comprehensive faith, three things you have to do. You need to answer the call of faith. You need to pay the cost of faith and hope in the culmination of faith. It's all faith. It begins when you answer the call to faith. So turn with me to verse 23, chapter 9, if you haven't already. Jesus says, and he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, when somebody comes to faith, there's always some sort of beginning, right? If you grew up maybe in a uh, confessional church or the Catholic church, it usually begins where you're baptized as an infant, and then later on you have some sort of confirmation, right? There might be some ritual to say that you are part of it now, and it usually begins with confession. If you come from maybe a Baptist church, the pastor preached a gospel message. They played just as I am 40 times and said, we're not ending the service until somebody comes forward and you decide, I'm going to serve Christ and end the service and you walk the aisle. You know what I'm saying? There's all kinds of different ways to kind of start the Christian faith and usually it starts with confession. And, And obviously it's interesting that Jesus doesn't introduce this aspect of answering the call until they get the confession right. Okay, I'm not anti-confession here. But he says, it begins when you deny yourself, take up your cross daily, 
and follow me. All of these build. It begins with, you have to deny yourself. And now when we hear that term, deny yourself, you might think about your friends who are partaking in Lent, saying, I'm going to deny myself chocolate for 40 days. Well, that is a sense of denial, right? He doesn't say deny yourself chocolate or deny yourself alcohol. He's saying you deny yourself. What is being denied is the self, the very self. Your ability to run your own life, to discover yourself, to indulge yourself, to pamper yourself. The self is not to be your master anymore because no one can serve two masters. To deny yourself was to renounce your right to rule over your own life. It is to bow the knee to say, I am the servant of another. And that means there is an earnest conviction and passion to heed whatever your new master has to say. So let's say your new master, who goes by Jesus, by the way, says, you need to forgive this person who has wronged you and is seeking your forgiveness. Now, the self will say, I don't feel like I'm ready yet. But your master says, tough, do it. What do you do? You obey your master, right? It's a very simple concept. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, with his help and the assistance of the Holy Spirit, you do it. It's you deny yourself. And then it gets even deeper, right? So how far do I deny myself? Well, to the point where you take up your cross. Take up your cross. Now, previously, Jesus just mentioned that he's going to die. He never said anything about crucifixion, but here he's hinting at it, isn't he? Now, crucifixion, I mean, here we have this decorative cross behind me, and we admire its oak finish. That's a beautiful cross. People would not comment about how nice that cross looks in that day and age. It would would be like, what a nice noose. It was associated with scandal and shame. It was, it was a cruel way to die. When somebody was crucified on the cross, it was a reminder that he fought the law and the law won. When you take on the state of Rome, this is what you can expect. When you were crucified, there were no known survivors of a crucifixion. It was a one-way ticket. And these Roman soldiers, they weren't going to carry your cross for you. You carry your cross. And where do you carry it? To the place of your execution. It was a one-way trip. And so when he says, pick up your cross, I mean, we're not not talking about just denying yourself chocolate here, right? Denying yourself. Denying yourself to the point where you are willing to be martyred. And isn't that what Jesus did? He surrendered his will to the will of the Father. The Father called him to do this. He did pick up his cross. And how often do you pick up your cross? Every day. Every day. You can't be a Christian and say, you know what? I'm going to take the weekend off of cross-bearing. Jesus, I'm going to take a paid vacation from picking up my cross and following you and go to Vegas. Jesus, I'm going to leave my cross down, do this whole decision here, ruin my life and my family, and then pick up my cross at the end of it 
because I know you'll forgive me. It's an everyday commitment to picking up your cross. Pastor Phil, he carried his cross for a while, but he put it down. Some of you might have put down your cross, but it's time to pick it up. You deny yourself, you pick up your cross, and you're not just picking up a cross because you have nothing better to do. There is a purpose for it, and this is what frames everything else. You follow me. Why do you pick up your cross? Because you're following Jesus. Why are you picking up your cross? Because Jesus picked up his cross. And why did Jesus pick up his cross? Because he denied himself and you're to do the same thing. This is a comprehensive commitment. And what's interesting is Jesus could have just told them, this is what you need to do and say, do as I say, not as I do. But to follow Jesus, you walk the path that he walked and he did so by denying himself, picking up his cross and, and doing the will of God. And so as we follow Jesus who follows God, ultimately that's who we're following. That is the comprehensive commitment to following the Christian life. Now there's an old saying in those infomercials, wait, it gets better. Well, that's not the case here. Wait, it gets harder. It gets harder. He says in verse 24, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now notice the balance here. Those who want to save their lives will lose it, and those who lose their lives will save it. And you think, well, what's the, what do I have to give up to follow Jesus? Well, you have to give up trying to save your life. If your life is that important to you and that precious to you, the very thing that you want to preserve, you're actually going to lose But if you're willing to give up your life, the very thing you want to, that you're willing to discard, will actually be given to you. And then he gives two costs to be paid. Right? This is our second point. You pay the cost. The first is, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now, those terms, gain and forfeit, they're financial terms, right? He's asking the question, What does it profit you, right, another financial turn, if you gain the whole world, if you you have everything, but it costs you your soul? And, And this is an acknowledgement that part of trying to save your life is to gain the world. Part of losing your life, well, there's a sense where you're willing to be impoverished. Now, there is a sense where there's not many rich not many noble, not many powerful, right? That often God chooses support, but often God chooses people who become impoverished in their desire to follow Christ. When we lay up treasure in heaven, there's a self-impoverishment that takes place. Or you can look at how much you gave during your entire life and think, I could have bought another house with that. Right? There is an impoverishment that often happens. Sometimes there's an impoverishment when you do the right thing and you conduct yourself with integrity. It seems like everybody else is cheating, bending the rules, but because of your fear of the Lord, you don't do it, and as a result, you tend to suffer. There might be some family decisions and family choices. Perhaps your deep desire to want to stay in a certain community where your family is flourishing causes you to say no to the job that can pay much more. Some of you might be called into full-time ministry, and while you might be able to enrich yourself in a certain way in another profession, uh, that's not what the Lord has called you to do. You know, there is a sense that when you follow Christ, and this is going to be a big theme of the book, where money is often the competition for allegiance to Christ. Just ask Judas. Are you read. 
where, where, where sometimes the cost just seems to be too great, the sacrifice is too much. I, I don't know if I can clear my schedule to make time for church. I don't think I can stop what I'm doing in this job if it means I have to serve the Lord with greater fervency and urgency. And so what Jesus does is he kind of reasons with the person. It's going to cost you everything. But he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In a parallel passage, loses or forfeits his soul. Now let's say a wealthy blind man approaches you and he offers to give you a billion dollars. This is a very wealthy blind man. And you're like, a billion dollars? We can pay off the church building debt with some of that. And you're thinking about all the things that you can do with a billion dollars, right? It's kind of a fun game. I don't recommend it because you get depressed at the end when you realize I'll never have a billion dollars. But here's the catch. Apparently there's some surgical procedure where... This wealthy blind man can gain his sight if he procures a healthy set of eyeballs. So here is what he's asking you to do. For $1 billion, I want you to give me your eyeballs. Well, I mean, if I had that billion dollars, I can buy my wife nice gifts. We could see the world. No, actually, we can't see the world. I can hear the world. Right? What's the point of all that wealth if you lose your eyeballs? Right? What's the point of all that wealth if you lose your soul? To see, the, to see how it, it doesn't make sense. If, if you confess that these are the realities, that Jesus is Lord and that he's going to come back again and establish this new world, if you are going to be pushed into outer darkness because you are not living for the Lord, you're basically a fool. You're a fool. So that's one cost, is the material cost. But then there's another cost, and I found this super interesting. Look at verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the angels. Now there is a contrast here, right? Jesus, he just alluded to him being crucified betrayed, executed, crucified, being rejected. So there's that vision of Jesus. And you know what? That vision of Jesus might be a little bit embarrassing for someone. But then there's another vision of Jesus, which is the Son of Man, right? That's from Daniel chapter 7, where he looks up and he sees one like the Son of Man. And this Son of Man is in glory. He's surrounded with glorious angels, right? And if you saw the Son of Man, you'd say, that's my Messiah, right? That's a Messiah you would be proud to be aligned with. That is the type of Messiah that the Jews anticipated, right? I'm proud of that Messiah, but when you see the Messiah who's on the cross, well, I'm not necessarily proud of him. Right? There is a shame going on. And Jesus says, you can't be proud of this Messiah unless you're proud of this one. If you are embarrassed by this Messiah, you will be embarrassed by this one, and he will be embarrassed by you. Right? There is a sense where you have to fight through the shame. Now, shame 
is a very interesting concept because we live in a life where I think maybe 40 years ago, we have what sociologists call a guilt-driven culture where people felt an internal sense of shame, right? We believed in God. We believe he gave us a conscience. And when we did bad things, it's almost like there was this inner accuser telling us that you've done wrong. Remember Pinocchio? Let your conscience be your guide. But nowadays, shame is something that is external. We don't feel ashamed of ourselves. People shame us, right? It's a shame-honor culture. And it is in this type of culture that Jesus and Paul and the apostles ministered. And frankly, the crucified Jesus was very embarrassing. Now, let's say Paul was talking to, or you were talking to, a Roman, and you're telling them about Jesus Christ. The Roman would say, well, the way you speak about Jesus, he must be a great king with vast resources, a palatial estate, and plenty of servants. Uh, Well, actually, um, Jesus, he is a great king, uh, but he was a country peasant who did, among other things, washed the disciples' feet. Oh, well, he doesn't have a big kingdom now, but, but surely, you know, some kings, they start off as poor, as poor, and then they gain wealth in the future, and they come back, and then they get their great estate. So where is this Jesus that I might be able to, to meet him and, and see if he has the ability to be this great king? Well, actually, you can't meet him because he's dead. Oh, well, surely he died some glorious death in battle. Right? Many honorable men have done so. Well, actually, he was crucified on the cross. What kind of king is this? Well, he actually rose from the dead, body and soul. We know bodies don't rise from the dead. And that was it. Right? It was an embarrassing message. And society would seek to embarrass those who believed it. And what's interesting is when you have a society that tries to control people by shame and guilt, that was a big deal back in that age. Because when you were, let's say, a Jew, you were defined by your community, right? I'm Simeon, right? The son of, we'll say, uh, Levi, the son of Levi. I I live in the town of, of Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah, part of the nation of Israel, right? You're all known by your relations. You know, it was kind of like stars were not necessarily known as individual stars, but where they were in the constellation. Your identity was, was forged by your constellation of relationships. And so if you do something crazy like confess Jesus as the Messiah and reject the core religion of the people of Israel, you are cast out. You are discarded. You are banished, you are shamed, you're a pariah. And Jesus is saying, if that's the cost of following me, you need to be willing to pay it. You will be shamed, just like I was shamed. But Jesus, Hebrews 12, verse 1, therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which Cling so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Isn't that interesting? 
Jesus was shamed, but he rejected the shaming. Now, we live, as I mentioned, in kind of a new shame-honor culture, right? They call it the fame and shame culture. You get famous with your social media account by getting all the likes and, and clicks and retweets, but as quickly as you rise, they will tear you down if you believe the wrong thing. Now, I'm not sure if you've heard about it, but you know, this is Pride Month. And Pride Month really says something about our society. It used to be that those who lived in that lifestyle, the LGBT community, were shamed by the, by the culture, right? And so they came up with a, with, a, with a special celebration where they said, we will not be shamed by this anymore, right? They pushed back against the shame. And now it's reached a point where they shame those who disapprove, right? If you're not on board with the rainbow flag, that's kind of the new shibboleth, if you don't stand by it in some way, you are a bad person who's responsible for LGBT teen suicides, right? There is a shaming that takes place. And every culture at every time, there's always some new way this culture will shame those who want to follow Christ as a way to dissuade them and punish them from really being all out for Jesus. And what some Christians will try to do, will, they'll, they'll try to find the middle ground. They'll stay agnostic on the issue at the moment. Or, or perhaps, as the, as the culture points the accusing finger of shame towards Christians, you know, those fundamentalist Trump-voting Christians, the Christian will get behind them and say, I'm not one of those Christians too. They're more likely to stand with the accusers than share the shame of their brethren, even if they disagree with them on a few things. Do you see how that plays out? And so many Christians, because they despise the shame and they don't want the shame, they're willing to distance themselves from those who our culture has deemed as pariahs. And that will only last so long if you are faithful. Eventually, this culture will find a way to hate you. If they hated Christ and they crucified him, what do you think they're going to do with those who follow him? That's part of following Christ. That is the cost. So why do it? Why do it? Well, you see the culmination of faith. But I tell you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, in the context, they're about to witness the transfiguration. They're about to, to see a glorious vision of Jesus, the vision of Jesus that everyone will see one day when they enter the kingdom of God. This is a foretaste, kind of a guarantee. Hang on, disciples, because this, you'll get more of this in the future. Right? It is the hope of the kingdom. It is the hope that one day Jesus will look very different he will reclaim the world under his reign. The people who stand in judgment over his people will be judged by him. Those who were not ashamed of Jesus will be proud of Jesus and Jesus will embrace them into the fold. And this is a miracle associated with the resurrection. I love the beginning of Acts chapter 1 where Jesus told them to go to all nations, make disciples of all nations. Power is going to be given to you from on high. He is rising into heaven. In verse 10 we read, And while they were gazing into heaven, he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem, and the mount called Olivet, which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. They were faithful to preach and to proclaim, and one day they'll be rewarded. And friend, that is a great payoff. Jesus never said the payoff is going to be a happier life here on earth, but it's in the kingdom to come, and it is that hope that one day you will be gloriously vindicated. You stand by Jesus, Jesus will stand by you in that day, and you will have a rich inheritance that will never be taken away from you. So what keeps you from making this kind of commitment, from having this kind of comprehensive faith? Well, I can't give you the exhaustive reasons, but I want to give you three possibilities. Number one, this is just a new concept for you. Uh, perhaps you grew up in a tradition where you're instructed that if you pray this prayer or you go through this catechism process, at the end of it, you will be a Christian after that. I was one of those men who uh, went to Christian camp, uh, was kind of taught to pray the prayer. I prayed the prayer, and I thought for a long time that's what made me a Christian. And, and things began to change when I went off to the University of Kansas that's right, something good happened there, besides all the national championships in basketball. But when I went there, I met devoted Christians, and, and as I did, I realized there was some fundamental difference between them and me, and I was drawn to them. Eventually, we went to a man-makers retreat, and they talked about pornography and other issues, and I remember just kind of being cornered, like, what did I just get myself into? But there was an issue of sin had to be addressed in my life. And I remember as I talked to all these men who I respected who seemed to get something, they, they seemed to get it. Um, it was very clear that Jesus was Lord of their life. And all of a sudden, it just kind of made sense. So what you're saying is if Jesus is Lord, then I'm not Lord. And if Jesus tells me to do something, I do it. And if Jesus tells me not to do something, I don't do it. Interesting. I feel like a moron saying it now, but it was a work of the Holy Spirit, right? So basically, I let Jesus call the shots. And whenever I try to call the shots, I repent and put him back on the throne. Ah. Oh. Well, if that's you, you are ignorant no more. There might be another reason. There might just be something you just don't want to surrender. You agree with it. You know Jesus died on the cross. You know he was raised from the dead. You know that hell is real and you are afraid of going there. But there's this area of your life. There's this relationship that you're in. You don't want to stop sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend. You, you're uncomfortable with having to give control of your life to Jesus. You, you are uncomfortable with, with having to be part of the community of faith and, and having elders and other people sent by the Lord helping and guiding you. You don't want to give up your self-autonomy. You want to have the freedom to live your Sunday mornings as you see fit. I remember talking to a man who didn't want to join our church because he was afraid it might violate his constitutional rights. Not to sound un-American, but the Constitution's going to burn. The word of God is what stands forever. And we live in a, in a society where really 
the true idol is people don't bow down to Baal or Buddha. They worship the idol of self. Self-care, self-forgiveness, self-esteem, self-discovery, learning to love yourself. And often they'll, they'll say, listen, I don't just worship myself. I worship Jesus. And, and tell me about your Jesus. Well, Jesus basically approves of everything that I do. And he disapproves of people who criticize me. Well, you know, that Jesus sounds less like Jesus and more like a glorified version of you, which is a worship of the self. But Jesus does not say, coddle yourself and follow me. He doesn't say, discover yourself and follow me. He doesn't say, love yourself and follow me. He says, deny yourself and follow me. That's the problem, it's the self. If you want your life, lose it and you will gain it. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now there's a final category here, and, and that's someone who hears about this comprehensive faith, and they think, I could never do that. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, you just don't believe that's possible. You hear stories about Phil and you think, that'll be me. Why? I don't want to start something that I can't finish. I've done too much in my life to think that one day I can make this kind of commitment. So what I'm going to try to do first is try to clean up my life first and then come to Christ. Or, or perhaps I need to really work on my faith first and then I'll go ahead and have faith in Jesus. But do you see the problem with that? We're not saved by perfect faith. Right? Perfect faith is the belief that if my faith is perfect, then I will be saved. But perfect faith is faith in your faith. The point of faith is not faith in your faith, but faith in the object of your faith, which is a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not saved by perfect faith, but by persevering faith. Many of you who got married, right, you made vows to your spouse. Were you the perfect husband or wife afterwards? Maybe for 10 minutes. But there's a persevering commitment. Does that make sense? The persevering faith is faith in Jesus as the object. And you seek to please him, not because you want to earn his favor, but because you love him and you are drawn to him. And you know what? When you have that kind of faith, it's resilient. You lose faith in yourself and you have more faith in Jesus Christ. I'm reading a real fascinating biography um, on Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot uh, was the widow of Jim Elliot, who was martyred attempting to reach the Wadani people in Ecuador. Uh, the Wadani people were known to be a Stone Age tribe who had a super high murder rate. They would spear any outsiders, but Jim Elliot and his four companions wanted to, to reach them. And he became lionized through to the work of Elizabeth Elliot promoting his journals. And what you see is a man who was sold out, he was committed, right? You, you don't get any more committed than going to the Amazon to try to reach murderous Stone Age tribes, right? What was really fascinating is his last journal entry is a candid confession about his struggle with lust. A month of temptation, this is December 31st, 1955, a month of temptation Satan and the flesh have been on me hard. 
He then confesses his lust. And he says, I have been very low inside me, struggling and casting myself hourly on Christ for help. Marriage is divorced from the privacy a man loves, but there is some privacy nothing can share. It is the knowledge of a sinful heart. These are the days of the New Year Believers Conference on the Sermon on the Mount. Yesterday I preached and was helped by whoever looks on a woman. Let the spirit conquer, though the flesh conspire. Eight days later, he would be speared to death. See, this is a man who had persevering faith, not perfect faith. This was a man who was always aware of his need for the Savior. Not only do you pick up your cross daily, you look to the cross daily. Agreed? Your faith is not in your perfect faith, but in the perfect man who lived the perfect life, who died the perfect death on the cross to perfect all those who look to him. You never quit in spite of what it may cost you. Shame from the world, personal impoverishment, it doesn't matter. You have a deep conviction that when you look to Christ, when you follow Christ, when he is the object of your affection, the reason you get up in the morning, the cause of your life, When he comes back in glory, he will look to you and welcome you into his kingdom. He will give you the very life that you gave up for him and more so. See, my prayer for you all is if you haven't made this commitment, one, it's a commitment we make every day, agreed? You make it again. If you haven't began making this commitment that this is a new day and a new start for you, It's more than just confession the right things about Christ. It's about a deep belief that leads to a fervency in your life, a deep conviction and a comprehensive faith. Let's pray. Father, we come before you just grateful for the call. And Lord, you never call us to do something you haven't done yourself. And we thank you for the model of Jesus Christ who showed us what it means to die to ourselves and follow your will. I pray for anyone here who might be on the outside looking in, that they will go ahead and make that commitment, that they will be drawn to it, that they will pick up the cross and follow Jesus. Lord, may they do so in faith, knowing that the calling that you have given them to do is something that you will assist them in, that ultimately you will carry that cross with us. And at the very end, you will uh, perfect, well, you will... um, complete what you began in us. But I do pray that they will make that initial step and that all of us in this community of disciples will nurture faith in all of us, encourage all of us to walk that pilgrim path together and that we will be changed and transformed by the glorious truths of the gospel. And in the process, Lord, will you help us to transform others who so desperately need it. Father, I, I pray for the perseverance of all these saints here, that they'll never quit Keep advancing, keep serving, and savoring you. In Christ's name, amen.